Well, good morning, everyone. Let me let me arrange myself here with um, books to talk about. Oh, no, the Bible goes up there. The books go down there. Christmas cards can go back there. We've come to the the final of our of our seven weeks on our series in prayer, and I hope I hope you've all found it uh, just as encouraging as I have, um, learning just as much as I have been along the way. And I think as we come to the end of it. This is a pretty good time to ask a simple, but I think a very important question. Does prayer actually change anything? Does prayer change anything? See, I'm guessing that if you've ever prayed, then you've probably also asked this question too. I mean, maybe you were praying this morning, sitting there in front of World Cup soccer, and you were left wondering, gosh, does prayer actually change anything? 2-1 down, so close, yet so far. If you missed it, spoiler alert, I'm sure you can fill in the gaps. But actually, maybe for you, that's the kind of question that arises out of some deep kind of theological thinking, like if God is in control of all things, if he is the sovereign Lord of the universe, he's known his plans from before the dawn of time, well, won't he he do what he wants to do anyway? So so how do our prayers change anything? That's That's an important question to wrestle with. On the other hand, for you, maybe this question comes out of a very different place. It comes out of some really deep heartache, a situation where you've been praying and praying, and praying, in some kind of painful situation in which it seems that your prayers went unanswered. I prayed and prayed and prayed. Does prayer change anything? Or maybe you're here this morning and you've come with a general scepticism about God in general, whether he's there at all, or if if he is there, is he actually the kind of God who's going to listen to the prayers of mere humans? I mean, really, does prayer actually change anything? See, as we come to the end of our series on prayer, we're coming to the end of the Lord's Prayer as it has been said by Christians for hundreds of years. We've got it on the screen for us here, Mandy, just to remind us of this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory, now and forever. Amen. And today we consider those final words in particular. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory, now and forever. Amen. Does prayer change anything? Well, as we'll see today, yes, it certainly does. And and buried in the conclusion of this prayer are three big reasons why it does. We've got the outline on screen, and if you're following it online, it's there for you as well. Prayer changes things because God is powerful, God is purposeful, and God is personal. So first, as we reflect on God as a powerful God, it's actually, I think, interesting to note that when Jesus first taught his disciples to pray, he doesn't include this final line of this prayer. The church added it later on. There was no deceit. There was no attempt to pretend that Jesus had said it. Just quite self-consciously recognizing that it is a fitting way to conclude our prayers. And really, Those early Christians, they were simply following the pattern of Scripture and and finishing with a word of praise, or as Bible geeks like to describe it, because they like to put things in fancy Greek words, doxology. That means praise words. Doxology, 
They're finishing in praise because they're just following the pattern that we see all the place, in, all over the place in Scripture. We've got Jude 24 and 25 on screen for us. Um, often a church service in the history of the church has been finished with these wonderful words. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Saviour, be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. It's a lovely encouragement, isn't it? This is, this is what God can do for us. He can hold us fast. But really, it's a word of praise. This is what God is like. And, and this follows the pattern of the Old Testament too, where there are praise words all over the place. Now, we don't know the exact history of why the early church shows the particular words that became tradition to finish the Lord's Prayer. But in many ways, they resemble a wonderful prayer of praise from King David, hundreds of years before Jesus. And we can read about it in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, which we'll pull up there for us now. You see, David was leading the whole nation of Israel in praise of God because, well, collectively, they were just blown away by the generosity of God's people contributing to a fundraising effort to build the temple, the national temple in Jerusalem. David was just overflowing in these words of praise because he saw in the people's generosity a reflection of God's generosity to them. Let me read that for us. David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Praise be to you, Lord, the God and Father of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power, the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honour come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. What a wonderful word of praise. And I'm sure you can see as we've read through that, you know, the, the echoes that we now have in the conclusion to the Lord's Prayer. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. You know, David was effectively saying, this place that we're going to build, this is yours. This people who've gathered together, they are yours. All of this stuff that you've blessed us richly with, it's, it's all yours. It's, it's not ours. It's all yours. And perhaps with that model in mind, I think the Lord's Prayer concludes with that same sermon. Yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory, now and forever. And it's such a wonderful way to conclude the Lord's Prayer because it underlines the confidence that we have when we pray. Because we approach the one who has the power to follow through. Those words of 1 Chronicles, chapter 29, verse 11. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and on earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. This is the God who has the power to follow through. It's the power to give us our daily bread. Because it's, his, it's, you know, it's, it's all his in the first place to give to us so we can ask confidently. Is the power with the one, uh, he is the one with the power to deliver us from the evil one because he rules over all things. So ask confidently. In fact, just this last week in our growth group, we were, we were kind of reflecting on this together and we thought, yeah, actually, that helps us to see that when we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. 
This isn't a timid prayer of people that are a bit nervous to get out from under the doona and out into the scary outside world. No, 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 this is a, this is a confident prayer prayed to a God who has the kingdom and the power and the glory. You see, ultimately, the confidence that we have in Christian prayer, it flows out of God and his power, which is kind of shown in its fullness in the power that raised Jesus from the dead. And I think that's helpful for us to remember because it's not just God flexing his muscle, although it is a mighty demonstration of power. But it also shows us that God used his power to raise up his people as he raises us up with his son. So we finish with a word of praise and it reminds us to come with confidence because we pray to the one with the power to act. Prayer changes things because this is what God is like. He's powerful. But on the next slide, to remind us where we're headed, prayer also reminds us that it changes things because God is purposeful. You see, the church has concluded the Lord's Prayer with the words, Yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. And to acknowledge that, well, he has the kingdom is not just another way of saying that he's really strong. It's actually an acknowledgement that he's doing something with his power. He's reigning over his world. As we've seen over the last few weeks, as Jesus taught his disciples about his kingdom that is to come, well, he said it's something that's already right there in their midst because he's there with them. But it's also something that will one day come in its fullness when he returns. So we hear, see here that, that, that in a really concise way, the, Lord, the Lord's Prayer, it concludes by praising God for his power applied in his purposes, his kingdom that is coming. And we've, of course, we've seen how Christians have praised God for that time and time again. Um, Ephesians chapter 1, uh, earlier in the year, we, we read this wonderful word of praise. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring all things, uh, to, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. You see, we're praising God for what he's already done and, and what he's going to do, but running all the way through this word of praise is that God has a mighty power that he is using to accomplish his really good purposes. Praising that we have this confidence that, that God has an eternal timeline on view. We only see the short term. And so we ask the question, gosh, does prayer actually change anything? But he sees the end from the beginning and he's taking us forward with his wonderful wisdom and kindness as he fulfills his purposes. Actually, we see something else really important here in this word of praise in Ephesians, that, that it all hinges on what Jesus has done for us so that we can be adopted as God's children. You see, prayer, you could say, is, is right at the heart of God's purposes. 
Because his great goal was to create a family who could come to him and cry out to him as our father, included through faith in Jesus. So we pray with, with confidence that we come to the one who is he's acting according to his good purposes. And I think this gives us a tremendous reassurance in those occasions when we don't see the answers we'd hoped for or the answers that we just surely they're the best. They're, they're obviously the good thing. And yet we are reassured when we remember that God is a purposeful God the prayer is still worthwhile. So what about those times when we don't see the impact of, of prayer in the way that we'd like? We've, we've prayed for something and it just, it just seems so good. It must surely be within God's good purposes, isn't it? Well, I think at those points we rest in God's character. It's the kind of character that Jesus taught us about. I've thrown up for you here uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 9 to 11. This is just after Jesus taught his disciples to pray. He says, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you're evil, you know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So this is the character of God that Jesus made known, that he's the father who loves to give good gifts. Jesus didn't point out to some specific you know, occasion of generosity in the history of God and his interaction. He, he could have, but he chose to point us to God's heart. But what about that time of unanswered prayer? Where are good, God's good gifts in that? Well, I'm deliberately taking us through all of these countless words of praise to help us to see how over the years God has taught his people to lean into this and we're going to turn to Romans chapter 11 to see another word of praise. If you're struggling to keep up with these references, they're all on the outline uh, on, online, so you can look them up again later on. But we're looking at the Apostle Paul wrestling with exactly that question. He's just spent 11 chapters, pages and pages, outlining God's grace to us in Jesus and, and Paul longing for all people to hear it, and in particular longing for his fellow Jews, his countrymen and women, to come and know that Jesus is the one, he's the Messiah, God's King. And he's been really honest about just how sad, how distressing it is that he sees so many of his fellow Jews doing the very opposite. They've rejected Jesus entirely, despite God's good purposes, Paul's ongoing prayer and his, his longing, his hard work. Look at how he responds in Romans chapter 11, picking it up in verse 33. Oh, the, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who's been his counsellor? Who's ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And friends, while Paul says these wonderful words of prayer, we've got to remember his heart. This is someone hurting as he sees his family, his friends, his colleagues turning their back on the word of life in Jesus. This is what it looks like to lean in to the character of our Father in heaven who loves to give good gifts. It's praising God and resting in his power 
expressed in his purposes. And at the end of it all, Paul doesn't know why things are the way that they are, but he knows he's God, who is both powerful and purposeful. And I think that means that when God doesn't give us what we've asked for, it's not because he hasn't heard or because he doesn't care or he can't do it, but simply that from our point in time and space, to use Paul's words, we we can't trace his paths. We, We can't see the wisdom and the kindness of God's judgments. We've prayed for one thing, but we lean into his character, trusting that he is working to bring about something even better. Even if we can't possibly imagine how that could possibly be better. And so we pray. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. So I trust in your character when I don't understand your decision. Got an image here that just helps us to to reflect on that. Because in the storms of life, it's his character that we lean into. And the other side of this coin is that it also means that we don't necessarily need to know what to ask for. We don't have to trace out the best possible solution. We can simply submit ourselves to his purposes. I mean, there have been many times in my life when I've been hurting so badly or just so confused by the complexity of the situation that I don't actually know what to ask for. Peter and I felt this really keenly when we suffered a miscarriage much earlier in our, in our marriage. How could this be, Lord? After praying so long for the gift of children, well, it was actually reflecting on his character as both powerful and purposeful that we, we learned that we could actually place ourselves in his hands and, and ask him to be at work for our good. That at the end of it all, the greatest thing that God can do is to make us more like Jesus. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. So I look to you to do what is best when it's all too painful or all too complex for me to work out what best looks like. So praise. Praise is an acknowledgement that we're working hard at trusting that God knows what he's doing. That we don't just look to his power, but we look to his character and his, his wisdom to use his power for his good purposes. And I think at the end of the day, this, this actually brings us home to the deep confidence that we have. The third of our points, that, that we pray, knowing that prayer changes things because we pray to a God who is personal. You see, the God of the Bible is someone, not something. Now, that might sound really obvious, but it's absolutely essential that we get it right. God is not just a force. And that means that Christian prayer is not just the kind of meditation where we're emptying our minds to sort of try and create space for some kind of spiritual connection with an impersonal other or some force or some thing. The Bible teaches us that God is someone that we speak with. Of course, it's, it's not like any of our other conversations that we have. You know, we're chatting over coffee after church today. It's back and forth. I mean, God is the Lord of the universe. And he's chosen to make himself known to us through his word. But our relationship with him is no less personal as he brings that word right into our hearts by his spirit and he invites us to come to him with our words too. We speak to God in prayer because God is personal. So yes, he's powerful, full of purpose, 
But the God we meet in the Bible, and ultimately we see him revealed in Jesus, he is deeply, personally, relationally engaged. He always has been. You remember, he's the God who, he, he can create out of nothing with only his word, let there be light. And he's chosen to act through our words spoken to him in our prayers. And I think that is mind-blowing. That's why we read from Job. You might have been thinking, gosh, this is a bit of an odd place to go at the end of this series. I'd invite you to turn up uh, Job again. For some very brief context, as Chris mentioned, Job lived hundreds of years before Jesus. He was a faithful guy and his world was torn apart. First, his possessions were taken from him. Then his family were murdered. Then even his own health was taken from him. And understandably, he wondered why all of this was happening and he had a lot to say about it to God. He also had three friends who supported him through it all. There was a lot that they did that was really commendable, really wonderful examples of friendship, especially the first seven days when they sat quietly with him and didn't say anything. Because after that, well, then they just kept putting their foot in their mouth. They insisted on trying to explain the reasons why this had happened to Job, most of which, in one way or another, involved kind of describing uh, God's judgment on Job. He must have got something very wrong to deserve this. And through it all, God is silent until you get to chapter 38 of the book when, when he finally speaks and he helps Job to understand just how powerful and purposeful he is in a very complex universe. We read just a little bit of that from chapter 40. But then we read how God sorted things out with Job's friends. Let me refresh our memory. You see, after the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I'm angry with you and your two friends because you've not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You've not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namanite uh, did what the Lord told them and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Just pause and think on that for a moment. Isn't that astounding? God had a very clear purpose in mind. He knew what he was going to do. He was going to show mercy to these friends that had just kept putting their foot in their mouth and actually speaking an error, speaking untruth about him. He knew what his, he knew what his purpose in mind for them was. He had the power to just make it happen. This is the God, after all, who already had in mind that he would send his own son to die on the cross for their sins. He didn't need Job to pray for them for this to happen. But God chose to use Job's prayers to bring grace to his friends. Does prayer change anything? Absolutely. Because this is the God of the Bible who is personal. He is relational. He is deeply engaged with his people. Prayer changes things because God chooses to use the prayers of his people as the means through which he acts in the world. Prayer is the sovereignty of God expressed in deeply personal relationship with his children. And I think that's really helpful for us to see, to to recognise two errors that we might fall into. On the one hand, we think, ah, 
There's the idea that God is powerless to act in the world, so he, he can only act in us. In prayer, does it change anything? Well, not out there, just in here. And I think that flows out of the common idea that God can't intervene in our world and respect our human free will at the same time. That sounds quite rational, it's just not biblical. It sounds kind of spiritual because it emphasises the impact of prayer on us. As I pray, it has a deep personal impact on me. That is true, but if that's where we leave it, that is just as unbiblical. God acted in the world, in the lives of his friends, in response to Job's prayer. Or the second idea that God is that, is that God is powerless to act in the world unless he acts through us. It's kind of the other end of the spectrum. It's a, it's a common misunderstanding that I think creeps into some of really well-intended ideas about intercessory prayer that God is somehow waiting for us to pray so that he can act. And I get it, that sounds kind of spiritual too, doesn't it? Because it puts an emphasis on prayer really changes things. But that's actually just as unbiblical because it ends up making God dependent on us and our prayers as if his hands are kind of tied, he'd love to get on with the job if only we'd stop and pray. You see, God acted in response to Job's prayers because that is how he chose to fulfil his purposes in relationship with his people. And instead of those two errors at either end of the spectrum, God only acts in us, God, God acts out there, but he, he can't do anything until we pray. We see God choosing that the means through which he is going to accomplish his purposes is through our prayers. He doesn't just bend down to act into the world. He chooses to bend so low and come so close that he uses our prayers in the process. The Lord of the universe chooses to act in response to the prayers of his children. I think that is amazing. So why wouldn't we pray? Let's pray confident that, that prayer changes things because we know that the God that we pray to. I mean, let's pray for, for Christie in Southeast Asia, trusting that God will act because he's chosen to, to reach down to us so personally that he'll use our prayers for her to make a difference in that part of the world. Let's pray for Lauren. She's off with a bunch of uni students away at National Training Event this weekend. Let's pray because we know that God he chooses to fulfil his purposes. Well, he could do it in their lives in any way that he likes, but he likes to do it through our prayers. So let's pray. And keep praying for your unbelieving family or for your own godliness or, or for whatever it might be that you strive and strive and strive in prayer because you know that God loves to have his children sit on his knee and pour out our hearts. He is a personal God. He loves it so much that it is his chosen means of powerfully fulfilling his purposes in the world. So those praise words at the end of the Lord's Prayer, that doxology, that is an active expression of our submission to this God who is, he is powerful and he is purposeful. And he is personal. It's an active decision to remember who we are engaging with. And I think this is why almost all of the Bible's prayers include praise. 
They'll start by recalling who God is and, and what he's on about. So let's do the same. Prayers of the Bible, they finish by recalling who God is and, and what he's on about. So let's do the same. And right through it, we, we see that God is reframing our concerns and our priorities, that we are coming and putting our requests to him in the context of our relationship with our loving Heavenly Father. Seven weeks ago, we began our Father in heaven. Today we finish. Yours. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory now and forever. Amen. Now, friends, as we wrap up, I hope that um, the sorts of things that we've been thinking about don't just stop here with seven really great uh, weeks in, in Bible study and growth group or, or sitting together here on a Sunday. I want to let you know about two books that um, I think are tremendously helpful. Uh, if you're a parent, this should be on the shopping list for your kids um, uh, this year or a, a great one to give to um, you know, nieces, nephews, grandkids. What Every Child Should Know About Prayer by Nancy Guthrie. Details of that one are on the, on the sermon outline online. And for your own reading or to encourage someone else, Timothy Keller, Prayer, Experiencing Awe and Intimacy with God. Two very different target audiences. Uh, this one has lots of pictures, very short um, you know, passages. This one goes deep and is rich and incredibly practical. Both of them beginning grounded in what we know of who God is through his word and how he teaches us to pray and the joyful intimacy that we have with God the one who works powerfully to fulfill his purposes through the prayers of his people. Two fantastic reads. But friend, I hope that as we're coming to the end of this, we're actually seeing that the prayer doesn't change things because of the way we pray and getting the words right, saying enough of them. Jesus is pretty clear about that. You read just before the Lord's Prayer and he's having a big smackdown to that idea. That's religion. We have relationship. Relationship with the Lord of the universe who invites us to come before him and, and talk to him as our father. It's not because of who we are, but because of who he is. That we know that the prayer changes things. Yes, it changes us as God keeps refining our perspective. But it also changes our world. Because the God of ultimate power chooses to work through the prayer of his children. So let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, you have been so kind to bring us into your family that we can cry out to you as our Father. That we can come to you with all of the, the needs and anxieties, the worries, the concerns, the joys and the, the hopes of this life. We just lay it all before you because you love to hear our prayers. But Father, as we do that, we pray that you would keep teaching us more of who you are. That we might come to you absolutely rock solid, confident that you are a God of power. That we might entrust ourselves to you and, and those we love and care for with such great confidence because we know you are working out your purposes in all of their wisdom and their beauty and their majesty. And then we thank you that, that we can come to you 
so humbly, so weak, and yet so privileged that you choose to work personally in our hearts and in this world in response to our prayers. So please keep us hungry for those moments, deliberate, conscious, thoughtful, or maybe even just incidental, accidental, along the way as we cry out to you because you love to hear our prayers. Teach us to love, to pray them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.